0: Listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church. Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy him forever.
1: Our reading is from Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read the first four verses. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Let's hear God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with christ in god when christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory amen this is god's word but here at trinity it's our usual practice for our Sunday sermon to be one sermon in a series of sermons working through a particular book or sometimes a topic of the Bible. Uh, But today we're taking a break from that usual practice and instead we're having a one-off standalone sermon because this weekend, as you're probably aware, is the weekend that is widely marked in our culture as Easter weekend. Good Friday is the day on which many people in our culture traditionally set apart as the day on which Christ's death on the cross is particularly remembered. And Easter Sunday traditionally marks the day on which Christ rose from the dead, his resurrection. It's a good thing to set aside time to focus on these all-important events. So much so, in fact, that the Christian church assembles for worship every Sunday, something that became the pattern even in the time of the New Testament, because it was on a Sunday that Christ rose from the dead. Every Sunday is, in this sense, Easter Sunday, because the very fact that Christians, the church, meet together on a Sunday is a reminder for us that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. Uh, Christ's resurrection clearly has huge significance. Uh, It's significant enough to have changed the day on which God's people meet to worship him from a Saturday, which had a long history in the time of the Old Testament, to a Sunday. Christ's resurrection is so significant that it shapes the way in which God is worshipped. It's hugely significant. But why? Why is there so much significance attached to Christ's resurrection? What's so important about it? Well, I want us to take note of three things from the beginning of Colossians chapter 3 this afternoon. I want us to see the reality of the resurrection, the meaning of the resurrection, and the benefit of the resurrection. The reality, the meaning, and the benefits. When it comes, first of all, to the reality of the, re- uh, of the resurrection, when it comes to what we are referring to when we refer to Christ's resurrection, the Bible is crystal clear that we are referring to a real, physical, bodily rising from the dead. And when the Bible presents Christ's resurrection to us, we are not presented with resurrection merely as an idea We're not referring to resurrection as some kind of concept or something that's merely symbolic, but we're referring to flesh and blood resurrection. The same is true when it comes to Christ's death. To say that Christ died is to say that he really did physically die in real flesh and blood terms. He tasted death, he experienced death, not merely as, but truly as Every human being who has died and who will die also tastes death. He experienced death as we experience death. His body was separated from his soul and it lay lifeless in the tomb in which it was buried. That is death. Christ truly died. It was not merely death in a symbolic sense. He did not experience something like death. But it was death as we know it, real and physical. Which is what, in the first place, makes the resurrection so striking. Because when we read that Christ rose from the dead, we are reading that Christ truly died and truly rose from the dead. He succumbed to death, and in his resurrection, he overcame death. This is the reality of Christ's resurrection. He physically died and he physically rose from the dead. Yet as striking as that reality is, it is also striking to people like us that this reality, real, physical resurrection, is not repeatedly defended at great length by the New Testament writers. That is to say the apostles did not feel the need to put forward what would in our minds be definitive evidence that Christ truly did rise from the dead. At least not every time they speak of the resurrection. That's not to say that we don't find proofs or evidence of the resurrection in the Bible because we do. Uh, The apostles and many others are purposefully named in the biblical accounts of the resurrection because they were eyewitnesses of the events. many of them were witnesses of the fact that Christ had truly died too. They'd taken him down from the cross. They'd prepared his body for burial. They buried him. And even those who hadn't witnessed that, even those who hadn't witnessed Christ's death, they'd witnessed enough to know that a man does not survive crucifixion. And so when they witnessed Jesus Christ very much alive three days after his crucifixion, and again in the 40 days that he continued to appear after that, there was no doubt in their minds as to what had happened. Actual death and actual resurrection. Bodily death and bodily resurrection. Uh, These eyewitnesses, they're put forward as evidence for the reality of the resurrection, but they're not put forward every time the New Testament writers focus on the resurrection. Because the reality of the resurrection is not everywhere defended, but it is everywhere assumed. That is to say, the reality of the resurrection underlies and is foundational for everything else that we read in the Bible. And you see this in our passage at the beginning of Colossians 3. The first two chapters of Colossians are similar in many ways to the first two chapters of Ephesians, which we've been looking at recently. And the same shift happens at the beginning of chapter 3 of each letter of Ephesians and Colossians. In the first two chapters, the Apostle Paul has been outlining what is true for the Christian. In a nutshell, he's been outlining how God has blessed the Christian in Christ. The focus has almost entirely been on what God has done. But in chapter 3 of each letter, the letter shifts to focus on how the Christian should then live in response to what God has done. Uh, just think about, if you've been with us recently, just think about chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians that we've been looking at and try and remember how many instructions were given in those two chapters. You probably struggle to remember any because there are almost none. Yeah, chapters 3 to 6 of Ephesians are full of instructions to us because Paul begins with what God has done Then he goes on to explain how we ought to live in response. The same is true in Colossians. From Colossians 3 onwards, Paul outlines for us how we ought to live as Christians in light of all that God has done for us. And right at the beginning of this section of the letter, which is all about how we are to live, Paul begins by drawing attention to the resurrection. Look down at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God for the apostle Paul the reality of Christ's resurrection the fact that Christ truly did rise from the dead underlies and is foundational for everything else the beginning of this chapter Paul begins to outline for us how we are to live as Christians he's dealing with the subject of ethics morality what we are to consider right what we are to consider wrong what we are to do what we are not to do And his starting point is the resurrection. The resurrection is absolutely foundational, not only in relation to all that God has accomplished for us, but also to the way we should live in response to what God has done. We'll see why that is as we go on in the passage. But for now, what is important to take note of is that the reality of the resurrection is, is everywhere assumed by the biblical writers. It is foundational for the teaching of the Bible So much so that Paul is willing to write in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That is to say, if the resurrection was not a reality, if it was not a physical bodily resurrection, then the Christian faith is all a waste of time and effort, it's all meaningless. If Christ did not really rise from the dead, then the foundation of the house is taken away and the house falls down. But Christ really did rise from the dead. And we need to recognise that this is absolutely foundational for our faith. If your understanding of what is being referred to when Christ's resurrection is referred to in the Bible is a little bit fuzzy. If you've quietly developed an understanding that Christ didn't really rise from the dead. And maybe it's all just some form of symbolism that we're to learn from. Then your understanding needs to change and be brought in line with the teaching of the Bible, which is that the resurrection is a reality. When we read of Christ rising from the dead, we're reading of resurrection in flesh and blood terms. That is foundational for the Christian faith, and so it needs to be part of the foundation of yours. But why is it so fundamental? Why does so much rest on the reality of Christ's resurrection? Well, secondly, we need to understand the meaning of the resurrection. And before we see the resurrection as having meaning for us, we need to see what it means for Christ. In Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4, Paul is describing what is often referred to as Christ's exaltation. At the beginning of verse 1, he speaks of Christ being raised, his resurrection. At the end of verse 1, he speaks of Christ being seated at the right hand of God, his ascension and his session. And then in verse 4, he states that Christ will appear again. He will, at a later point, once again be visible. Christ rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, he's seated at the Father's right hand, and he will one day return That is what is meant by Christ's exaltation, the way in which he's exalted and lifted up. He was, as we were hearing last week, humbled. He was humiliated. And his humiliation took him to his death and to the particular death that he died on the cross. But he is no longer in the state of humiliation, He is instead now exalted. He's in a state of exaltation. And the resurrection is, in a sense, the beginning of his exaltation. Christ's resurrection is the announcement that this man, who seemed to be only another name added to history's long humiliated has-been list, just another human being who showed promise but was conquered by death just like the rest of us, Christ's resurrection is the announcement that this man was not conquered by death, but is in fact death's conqueror. And as the conqueror of death, the resurrection marks the beginning of his victory parade and his coronation as the king who's defeated all his enemies. All of which is to say he is the exalted one. What the resurrection means in the first place is that Christ has been exalted. It means that Christ is therefore no longer suffering. Just think about that. that. Christ is no longer under the power of death. You and I continue to suffer because we continue to live in this world which is under the power of death. The suffering we experience, it's the fruit of death. And we experience it as we slide towards our actual physical death. It's inescapable for fallen human beings like us. But Christ, because of his resurrection and exaltation, is no longer under that power. He came into this world. He voluntarily put himself under that power for a time. But that time came to an end at his resurrection... And he is now no longer under it. He no longer suffers. It is sadly true, isn't it, that we struggle to be as happy for others when they receive or experience good things as we are for the good that we ourselves receive or experience. We don't rejoice as much when a friend gets the job they wanted or when somebody else's children are sleeping through the night and behaving well or working hard at school. We tend, when we hear about those things, to simply map them onto our own experience and wish that they were things we had or we experienced. I wonder whether, as a result of that tendency, when we contemplate Christ's resurrection, we tend to overlook what it means for him. We're in such a hurry to get to what it means for us, we don't give a moment's thought to his experience. It ought to fill us with joy that Christ has risen from the dead, has ascended to heaven, is seated at the Father's right hand, and is waiting for the day on which He'll return and experience that final stage of His exaltation. It ought to fill us with joy that our Lord, our King, our Savior, is no longer suffering for us. His suffering has come to an end, He has fought His battle and has won. And the resurrection proves it. As one theologian once wrote, the resurrection is the father's amen to the son's declaration on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. Christ has conquered his enemies. He is no longer humiliated but exalted. And all who love him rejoice for him. Jesus said to the apostles in John fourteen twenty eight, You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Now, the resurrection has meaning, firstly, for Christ. Yet wonderfully, the resurrection also has meaning for Christ's people. And we see this in the way Paul reasons at the beginning of Colossians 3. He begins in verse 1 by writing, If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, Paul is writing to Christians and he's about to go on and give them instruction in how they are to live now they've become Christians. But he doesn't address them as people who have become Christians. He doesn't address the, uh, 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 these people in those terms. Instead he addresses them as people who have been raised with Christ. The if, at the beginning of verse 1, it's not communicating any kind of uncertainty. Uh, Paul isn't implying that some Christians haven't been raised with Christ, but others have. Uh, He's simply emphasising that to be a Christian is to have been raised with Christ. If this has happened... And for those of you who are Christians, it has. Then this is how you are to live, is his reasoning. There's nothing uncertain about verse 1. The meaning of Christ's resurrection for Christ's people is that Christ's resurrection is the cause of our own resurrection. you have been raised with Christ. And what is striking about this opening statement in verse 1 is the timing of our resurrection. I notice that Paul refers to our resurrection as something that has already taken place. You have been raised with Christ. Why does Paul speak of our resurrection as something that's already happened? I expect most of us are just all too aware that our physical bodies are not of the same quality as Christ's resurrection body, He no longer suffers, his body is no longer subject to frailty and illness and tiredness and pain and weakness, but our bodies are. And so how is it that Paul can speak of our resurrection having already happened as a thing that took place in the past? And the answer is found in this one profound reality that that undergirds all of the Apostle Paul's writings, can be summed up like this. Wherever Christ goes, there his people go. Wherever Christ is, there his people are. And therefore, whatever Christ does, he does whilst at the same time, in a very real sense, carrying his people with him. Now, if that all sounds a little bit mysterious to you, then good because there is an element of mystery about this. But the fact that there's an element of mystery about it does not make it any less real. Uh, Theologians, when they write about this biblical teaching, often refer to it with the term union. They speak of our union with Christ. Uh, Christ and his people are joined in such an inseparable union that wherever Christ goes, there his people go too. This is why in the Bible we come across marriage being used as an analogy to describe the relationship between Christ and his people. Christ referred to as the husband, his people referred to as the the wife or the bride. A husband and and a wife are united together in a a particular way. So much so that there is a sense in which we can say that wherever one goes, the other goes. Whatever one does, the other also does. And so, if the husband or the wife brings a mountain of debt into the marriage, the debt becomes the responsibility of the other person too. The flip side, if one brings an enormous amount of wealth into the marriage, the wealth becomes the wealth of the other person too. It's as though, because the husband and wife are joined together in a marriage union, when one racked up that debt in the past both of them racked up that debt. And when one acquired that great wealth in the past, both of them acquired that great wealth. Because wherever the husband goes, the wife united to him also goes in that sense. Now, this doesn't answer all of our questions about what it means for Christ to be united to his people, but it does help us understand what Paul is referring to. You have been raised with Christ. Because on that day when Christ walked out of the tomb, he walked out in union with his people. You walked out on that day, united to him, Christian believer. Paul applies the same reasoning to Christ's death in verse 3. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've died, he says, when? When? When Christ died. When Christ was lifted up on the cross to die. He was lifted up in union with his people. United to his people. When he died. We died together with him. United to him. In God's mercy. We didn't experience that death. But it wasn't a very real sense our death. Because wherever Christ is there his people are. Which is why the resurrection of Christ means the resurrection of his people. It's why Paul can say that our life is now hidden with Christ in God because we're so united to Christ that his life is our life. And that's why we can be certain as Paul outlines in verse 4 that when Christ appears for a second time then we, his people, will also appear with him. It's a certainty because wherever Christ is, there his people are. And so Christian, let me assure you on the authority of God's word, that you have died. Your death has already taken place. And so has your resurrection. You have been raised with Christ. Death Itself is a a frightening thing. But Christ has died it for you. You've been raised with him. Which brings us to our third and final point. The benefit of the resurrection. We need to expand on this a little bit, don't we? How exactly do we benefit from the resurrection? What exactly does it mean that we have been raised with Christ? Well... Our passage is framed by two events. One that's already happened, and one that's not yet happened. Or perhaps more accurately, our passage is framed by two stages of one single event. Stage one has already taken place, and we're waiting for stage two to be carried out. Stage one is summed up in that statement You have been raised with Christ. Uh, it's expanded upon at the end of verse three You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. At what took place when Christ died and rose again that has result, resulted in you and I no longer being under the power of death, but instead having our life hidden in Christ? What took place? Well, the answer is found in what Paul alludes to at the end of verse 1. At the end of verse 1 he points out that The risen Lord Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. that description is a reference to Psalm 110, which we read earlier in the service. Psalm 110 begins, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a description of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. And it's a description that points to two things. Firstly, it points to the fact that the risen Lord Jesus Christ now rules over all things. He's in the seat of authority. We saw that back in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. But it's also a description, secondly, that points to the work that Christ carries out as a priest. In verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 110, we read, "'The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever.'" After the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. Christ, we are told, is an eternal priest who is at the Father's right hand. Of all the Old Testament passages that are referred to in the New Testament, Psalm 110 is, in fact, the most frequently referenced. And it's often, in Hebrews, as well as in Romans 8 used to highlight that Christ is seated at the right hand of God as our priest. Why is that significant? It's significant because of the role of the priest. What was the role of the priest? The role of the priest was to offer sacrifices to God for the sins of God's people. And Christ as our priest offered himself up to death as the sacrifice for our sins. And yet because he did not remain dead, but he rose from the dead and is now seated at God's right hand, he has demonstrated that his sacrifice was effective. It's been accepted by God and his position at God's right hand means that there is no more sacrificing to be done. All of which is to say, if I've lost you, at any point during in that last part. This is the key point. The benefit of the resurrection... Is in the first place that our sins have been atoned for, and therefore all who repent of their sin and trust in Christ are raised with Him now, spiritually. That is stage one. Stage one of the benefit of the resurrection, if you like. We are raised to new life spiritually. And we experience resurrection life in this sense here and now. But there's also a second stage to how we benefit from the resurrection. It's found in verse 4. Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is speaking here about what will take place when Christ returns. When Christ appears at his return, all of his people will also appear with him. Yet, not in the condition that we can be seen in now, but instead in glory. That is to say, in physical bodies worthy of the term glory. the way in which we benefit from Christ's resurrection is not only spiritual but will also one day be physical. And this is something that ought to bring us immense comfort in this life as we continue to suffer physically. It gives us the authority to say to somebody who is suffering, life will not always be this way and to know that when you say that to them, you are not saying merely an empty nicety. if If that's you this afternoon, if you've come to church, as we often do, just overwhelmed by how difficult or how frustrating or just how heartbreakingly sad life can be, you need to know that it won't always be this way. One day Christ will appear again and you will appear with him, not in your current state and not in this current environment, but in glory. And when that happens, every frustration and sadness will be put away from us. And these bodies of ours that are increasingly worn out by sickness and grief will be raised as Glorious bodies, resurrection bodies, bodies of life. Not always be this way. I'm not sure that we dwell on this as much as we ought to. Yet here it is. Among the things that Paul urges us as those who've been raised with Christ to set our minds on. That's the instruction Paul gives in verse 1 and 2. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We need to finish, but here's the way we ought to respond to these things. We set our minds on them. We think about them. We make space in our daily and weekly rhythm and routine to dwell on them. So what will that look like for you? In this next week and going forward, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your great wisdom and mercy and grace, you have raised your people together with Christ. We praise you that one day we will appear with him in glory when he returns. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed help us to set our minds on these things. Remove our minds from the things of the earth and to set, to, to set our minds on things where Christ is seated. We pray in His name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.